Good morning. <clears throat> uh, welcome back from spring break. It's nice to have you all back. Uh, it's my privilege to introduce our speaker for this morning. Uh, Ashley Baldwin is a 2012 graduate of Covenant College. She has been serving since 2013 as the Executive Director of Choices Pregnancy Resource Center in Chattanooga. Uh, if you're not familiar with Choices, we're, we're looking actually to build a, a stronger relationship with them. Uh, but uh, kind of as a tagline that she gave me, and I think it's really beautiful, is uh, not just pro-life, but pro-abundant life. And Ash is working hard to uh, move the ministry in that direction. Uh, she and her husband, Ben, live in St. Elmo and uh, are proud to call Chattanooga home. So if you would, please give a warm Scots welcome to an alum, Ashley Baldwin. Before I begin, I just want us to pray together. God, I offer myself to you to build with me and do with me what you want. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I might better do your will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those that I would help of your power, your love, and your way of life. May I do your will always. Good morning, future friends. I'm honored to be here, but if I'm honest, I'm also intimidated. Sometimes it feels like just yesterday I was strolling into the Great Hall for my 11 a.m. breakfast as a Carter girl, sporting my blue and pink onesie. It's hard for me to imagine myself being up here as the chapel speaker. In fact, when I was a student at Covenant College, the idea of public speaking was nauseating to me. When I ran for student senate secretary my junior year, I was terrified of the speech that I would have to give to be eligible for the position. Ironically, I ended up speaking to an almost empty room of less than 20 people, one of which was my now husband, who still edits my speeches today. So if you don't like this one, you can take it up with him. Shockingly, I wasn't elected into office. In hindsight, it may have been a PR issue on my part. Let's examine a few of my campaign flyers together. Number one, I've been using Microsoft Word since I was a baby. Vote Ashley McGarvey for secretary. Number two, my resume speaks for itself. It's so embarrassing having a professional job now. Number three, taking notes is the highlight of my day. Vote Ashley McGarvey for secretary. And yes, I did put these all over campus. I had a blast. I thought it was super fun. However, I'm not even sure if my husband, my own husband, even voted for me. Here's a little unsolicited advice before we begin. Be careful about making ultimatums when you come to Covenant. I made the mistake of saying, I'm not going to have one of those marriage mills on the hill stories. I refuse to be a statistic. I came to Covenant convinced that I was going to take a break from dating. I did have my fair share of casual hall dates, though. 
but I didn't cross the line and go on any confusing, misleading coffee dates that usually ended in a DTR weeks later. I'm assuming everyone here knows what a DTR is. Define the relationship. Because it's a term that I only learned here at Covenant. Well, in spite of my resolve, I met my future husband at Jazz on the Overlook a whopping two months into my freshman year. <laughs> it wasn't love at first sight for him at all, which is another story for another time. I'm going to go off script right now because my husband did not want me to add this to my speech, but I have to tell you about the moment that we officially started pursuing each other. We had an awkward DTR about two weeks prior, and being the godly Covenant College couple that we were, we decided that we would stop communicating with each other for two weeks so we could pray and seek counsel regarding whether or not we should continue to pursue one another. It was an agonizing two weeks. I was so nervous to get together and talk about what God was calling us to do. Picture this, it's Sunday night. We've just finished Carter Prayer and Praise. And after Carter Prayer and Praise ended, we were gonna have this talk on the Overlook. So all my girlfriends on the hall are giving me this big send-off. They're hugging me, telling me things like, <laughs> telling me things like, no matter what happens, we're still here for you and we still love you. My husband and I walked in silence to the overlook and sat down on the bench. I was too nervous to even talk, and I knew I wanted to be with him, but I was like, oh, what if he doesn't? I can't be the first person to talk. So I said, I think you need to go first. <laughs> he began by saying, well, I don't want to date you. And then this big, long pause, my heart drops. I'm like, should I just leave now? I want to cry. And I mean, it probably was five seconds, but it felt like two minutes. But then he continued and said, I, didn't, well, I don't want to date you, I want to court you. <laughs> Guys, we were trying to do everything right, as you will see as I get through this chapel talk today. He did sell me with that line, though, and the rest was history. And I continued to do the things I never said I would do, like getting married before we even graduated. Somehow he convinced me to work out our schedules so that we could graduate a semester ahead of schedule in order to get married. I ended up staying in Chattanooga. I ended up renting a house on the mountain. And then I recently, we recently just bought a home in St. Elmo, which I said I would never do. I sat here at Covenant and said, well, I'm never gonna be like those people who just moved to St. Elmo, which everyone knows is Covenant 2.0. Here's a photo of us now in our new home. And we are so happy. And we really are feeling like we're here for the long haul. Well, joking aside, as I considered what I wanted to share today, I decided that the best thing I have to offer you all is how my inability to cope with life well after covenant has led to a richer, more meaningful connection with God and others, especially with those that I would have previously considered so different from me. 
The last year and a half of my life has been a wild adventure towards freedom. At times, it has been hard, scary, and painful. At other times, it has been hopeful, joyful, and exciting. Sometimes, it's been a combination of all those things. I have by no means arrived, but what I have found has seemed to radically change the trajectory of my life. If I had to sum it up in one statement, I would say that I think I have found abundant life, and it's something I'm actually experiencing, not just thinking about or hoping to find in heaven. The scripture I want to focus on this morning is John 10:10. 10, 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. About two and a half years ago, I found myself back in the counseling office of the same counselor I met while I was at Covenant College. Unsolicited advice number two, counseling is free while you're at Covenant. Once you graduate, like everything else, you'll have to pay for it. I went to counseling all four years while I was a student, and now, looking back, can see the tremendous emotional and financial um, just way that it added so much value to my life. Shameless plug is over, but seriously, guys, go to counseling. It's a tremendous opportunity. At the age of 23, I found myself honestly, legitimately scared for my sanity. I was overwhelmed by the pressure that I felt, and I feared that I was going to crack under this pressure and perhaps even land in a mental facility. This was a big fear of mine, especially since mental illness runs in my family. Why was I overwhelmed? Because I was incredibly exhausted and could not see any real hope of rest in the future. I was working and working and then working some more, only to go to bed, get up the next day, and do it all over again. Of course, I blamed it on my circumstances. I was young, I was recently married, I was transitioning into this huge role at work. I was trying to adjust to adulting, as they now call it. I have to pause and share this hilarious um, thing I saw on Facebook the other day. It said, adulting is like looking both ways before you cross the street and then getting hit by an airplane. And I just thought, that is so funny. And I promised my husband I wouldn't share that joke because he said, don't share that joke, it's silly. But it's funny. <laughs> I tried to convince myself that eventually things would calm down, but part of me knew that I had a problem that extended beyond my circumstances. This legitimately concerned me, and I knew that this pattern of living just wasn't sustainable. I was also really confused, um, because if I'm honest, I thought I had followed the formula for Christian happiness, or at least the formula of how you can do everything right to be okay. I was reading my Bible, I was married to a Christian man who loved me, we were deeply involved in church, I had a good job, we were serving, we were tithing, and the list goes on. But I was fearful because I was so tired and so discontent, and I was like, I am 23 years old. It's hard for me to admit, but I was in a really rough spot. I felt very empty and unfulfilled, and I really was not feeling satisfied despite dutifully managing my Christian checklist daily. I was deeply disappointed and couldn't help ask the questions, is this really it? Is this all there is to life, especially the Christian life? Am I just going to remain miserable with the hope of heaven and this wonderful future to get me through? I remember lying in bed one night and dramatically asking my husband, 
What's the point of this life? We get up and go to work and come home and do it all over again. You know, the lighthearted stuff that every married couple talks about at midnight. On top of feeling like I lacked purpose, I also didn't like my behavior. I kept repeating patterns that I didn't like with other people. My attitude towards others was frequently critical, unloving, and judgmental. One example is that I would be excited to see my husband all day long, envisioning me being so vulnerable and having all these loving conversations when we got home, only to feel like all that was coming out of my mouth was criticism towards him. I felt like I had to put other people down to feel better about myself, even if it was only internally. I felt consumed by resentment, pride, and judgment. I really did want to change, but I did not know how. I tried to share these struggles with other people, but I felt like they didn't believe me because my life looked together on the exterior. I was leading a Christian nonprofit, married, active in my church. I felt like a phony because in my heart, I knew that all of this action that I was putting forth was just motivated by guilt. I certainly didn't feel free. In fact, I felt trapped and exhausted from performing. I, I would try to share with people that the gospel was this great thing that set you free, but I knew I wasn't experiencing that for myself. I had a great Christian resume. I'm a pastor's kid, grew up involved in church, was in reformed private Christian education most of my life, was a Covenant College grad, but something was missing. I wasn't really aware that for myself, I was addicted to the illusion of control. I felt that if I could do everything right, I would feel good enough and that this would protect me from getting hurt. This had been my coping mechanism in my main MO my whole life, especially growing up. It just didn't seem to be working anymore. Keeping up this image was costing me a lot. What I know now that I didn't know then was that I was so exhausted because of how hard I was working to keep this exterior image going. For example, I felt like I had all these different areas of my life that I was trying to control. I was obsessive about my weight, about my appearance, about my home and its cleanliness, about my marriage, about my husband doing everything right, about succeeding at work, about making a certain amount of money, and that's just naming a few things on my list. Things began to crumble for me when I tried to repeat it, repeatedly control other people's behavior and my own behavior. My life had become unmanageable and I needed a new solution. As I became aware of this problem, I remember hearing a sermon that focused on God's love for us. The pastor talked about exhaustion as a result of our endless striving. I remember my husband Ben and I were on a road trip listening to this sermon on CD, and we just kept playing it. I think we listened to it for a total of three times in a row. That was the first time I had ever heard anyone talk about the exhaustion and hopelessness that I was feeling. He discussed this idea of performancism and its role in our self-salvation projects. What I came to realize was that functionally, my faith system was built upon the idea that I had to work to be good enough for God. I was really thankful for the cross, but in the end, if I could only kick in 80% that week, I was so thankful that God could kick in the remaining 20%. This was deeply disturbing to me. 
because verbally um, and externally, I would say that I trusted God and his finished work on the cross for my life. But I was behaving like it was all up to me. Hearing and beginning to understand this truth was incredibly emotional and profound for me. It was God declaring over my life, it is finished. It was, be, the be, it was the beginning of the end of striving and the beginning of a life of freedom. I want to pause here and talk briefly about what that life of striving looked like for me. For me, it manifested itself in perfectionism. Brene Brown defines perfectionism as the belief that if we live perfect, looked perfect, and act perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment, and shame. She goes on to say that it is a shield, that we think it will protect us when in fact it is the very thing that prevents us from taking flight. Perfectionism at its core is about trying to earn approval and acceptance. It is a self-destructive and addictive belief system. Here is an example of how this played out during a typical day in my life. I'd go to work and work like crazy all day, trying with all my effort to do my best and succeed and do an all-star job to avoid potential criticism and failure. I'd come home, and if I hadn't gotten everything done that I felt like I was supposed to get done at work, I would do more work at home. Then I'd try and make it a priority to take care of myself. So then I'd be concerned about eating right, about exercising that day. Staying fit and in shape was an important part of keeping up my image and a defense against any unwanted comments or potential shame. Then I'd put this pressure on myself to cook dinner and make sure my husband and I ate together because that was what it meant to be a good wife. Next, I'd want my husband to accomplish this to-do list with me, getting the house perfect, preparing these cutesy little lunches for the next day, making sure we had what we needed to wear to work. Because having the home in order and our lives organized made me feel like I was good enough and a responsible adult. If I got the big to-do list done, I'd be happy, and if I didn't, I would feel like a failure. Some nights we would have church activities or other community activities that we should go and serve at. And it was important that we always showed up for those, not because we wanted to, but because we felt like that was what we were supposed to do. By the end of the night, sometimes I'd get everything finished or would be unhappy or anxious because I hadn't. Now, I'm not saying that all of those things are not good goals and healthy things as a part of your life. I'm just saying that for me, it was very obsessive and controlling. My husband would frequently ask me, so when do we get to spend time together tonight? And I would say, well, after we get the list done. But that never came. I was completely incapable of living in the moment because I was so focused on having everything together. Understanding perfectionism was and continues to be very relevant to me. Ultimately, I did not understand my fundamental identity as God's daughter. A daughter that God doesn't just love, but likes. Oh, how understanding that truth has begun to radically change my life. Brennan Manning in his book, Abba's Child, says, It takes a profound conversion experience to accept that God is relentlessly tender and compassionate towards us just as we are, not in spite of our sins and faults, but with them. This truth that God loves us and accepts us just as we are is where the power lies. 
This unconditional love is what has enabled me to stop performing and to come out of hiding. Through the assurance of this love, I have been able to face myself. A key part of this journey for me has been facing myself and being able to take a look at who I really am. I think it's so easy for us on our faith journeys to keep building up our spiritual muscles but neglect to look at our emotions and our emotional health. We compartmentalize, or at least I did, instead of allowing the transformative power of the gospel to affect our emotions and our hearts. Peter Scazzaro, author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, discusses just how important this link is. He firmly believes that you can't be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. This was a new idea to me, but as I read further, it was very helpful in discovering why I wasn't seeing victory over certain behaviors in my life. I was simply focusing on sin containment instead of inviting God's deep love to invade the most wounded parts of my emotions. This may seem like a foreign concept. It certainly seemed like a selfish concept to me in some ways to allow myself to spend time examining myself instead of serving other people. But I firmly believe that unless we do the hard work of facing ourselves and our past wounds, we will not see the radical transformation that God wants for each of us. I've been able to do this through counseling in a 12-step group that I've been a part of. It's been absolutely vital to my spiritual development to work through different areas of shame and various belief systems that I took with me from my childhood into my adulthood. As Brene Brown shares, where perfectionism exists, shame is always lurking. In fact, shame is the birthplace of perfectionism. When we don't face shame, it devours us. For me to abandon perfectionism, or at least begin to start walking away from it, I had to move through my shame and find freedom. Perfectionism promised me that it would protect me from being shamed. Today, I find relief from my shame through connection. Previously, when I had felt fear or shame in my life, I would pray, but ultimately face that on my own. And in my prayers, I was actually trying to control God. My prayer was really asking God to change my circumstances and not to change me as an individual. Then, weeks later in my small group, I would share about my experience only after I felt, bad, felt better about it. I thought that this is what community was. I am learning now that I need a live connection every time I feel shame and fear. For example, even while writing this speech, I felt intense fear and wanted to shut down and isolate myself. I realized I was fearful of being vulnerable, I was fearful of what you all would think of me, I was fearful of being shamed and fearful of failing. By bringing my fear to light as I was experiencing it in the presence of another human being, the power that fear had over me was broken until it resurfaced again and I had to make another phone call while I was driving up the mountain. I think this is how God wants to connect with me. Through others, in the middle of my fear and shame, while I'm experiencing it. 
What I have found is that God and I actually bond as I surrender my addiction to control to him through confessing it to somebody else. I'll repeat that. God and I bond as I surrender my addiction to control to him through confession with other people. I now see him hijacking this compulsion to control and turning it into an opportunity in my life by which I can walk in step with the Spirit through daily surrender. It is not my job to get rid of my sin because that would be impossible. It's my job to surrender. This has been a totally new way of living for me and an incredible invitation to freedom. In his book, Abba's Child, Brennan Manning discusses what this invitation to freedom looks like. He talks about God's incredible love for us as the antidote to feelings of shame and self-hatred. He shares his view that self-hatred is the dominant malaise crippling Christians and stifling their growth in the spirit. We're constantly hearing negative voices from our family of origin, moralizing from the church, and unending pressure to be successful. This is what drives alcoholism, workaholism, addictive behaviors, and suicide rates. We only learn to be gentle with ourselves by experiencing the intimate, heartfelt compassion of Jesus as he calls us out of ourselves and into his love. And it is only through experiencing this compassion for ourselves that we are able to love others well. Previously, as I had mentioned, I really didn't like the way that I treated people. I felt like I had to think a certain way and that the gospel certainly didn't allow for me to be in relationship with people who didn't think like me. That would just be too wild. Because I was so wrapped up in my wounds and all of these self-protective behaviors, there really wasn't any room to risk to love people, especially if they were different from me. There was only room for certainty. I think back to the list of the things I told my counselor that I wanted to overcome, ways of behaving that I wanted to change. I told him, I think I'm just hardwired to be pharisaical and judgmental and critical and unloving. I remember him chuckling as I shared this with him, knowing that facing my wounds and bringing them into the light would remove the need for these self-protective behaviors. In the words of Thomas Merton, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. The compassion that I show others is directly correlated to the love and compassion I have for myself. The verse, love your neighbor as yourself, has taken on an entirely new meaning for me. If I don't love myself and see myself as God loves me, how can I possibly love others well? I used to think that my God-given role with others, usually upon first meeting them, was to help them see their sin and share with them what in their life did not align with Scripture. In the words of Bob Goff, I used to want to fix people, now I just want to be with them. I now understand that the greatest gift, the core principle that the entire gospel hinges upon is the fact that I am loved and accepted just as I am. God isn't waiting for me to become perfect or get my act together before we can get to know each other. This is the miracle of the gospel, that he has already done the work and he actually uses my sin to draw me closer to him. 
I have been a grateful recipient of this kind of love from numerous people, but mostly it has come from the community I have found in the 12-step group that I've been a part of. My experience in this group has been the first time in my life that I finally felt accepted and loved just the way I was. This continues to be the best example of the gospel being lived out that I have ever seen. People don't need to know first about everything they're doing wrong. They need to know first about how incredibly loved they are. My screensaver on my computer is a beautiful quote that reads, the love we show may be the invitation that draws someone to the heart of God. My husband, Ben, likes to think of this idea as an invitation from God to join him at his table. Every day, we have the opportunity to feast with him, and he doesn't require us to bring a side dish or to wear fancy clothes. He doesn't care if we're messy. He just asks us to show up. My husband and I have been so impacted by this idea that a year ago, we decided to open up our home almost every Thursday night to anyone that would want to come over and join us for spaghetti and meatballs. And the invitation is open to each and every one of you today. We would love to have you and your friends in our home eating our food. If you're interested, talk to me at the end to get more details or find me on Facebook. It's been amazing to see how God has transformed us and others through this experience. I am encountering and hosting people in my home that I never dreamed I'd interact with. I am much more aware of the messiness and complexity of life, yet I have encountered a new richness that I had never experienced before. Through Thursday nights, we are learning more deeply of God's radical love for us right where we are. This is the power of the gospel and the truth that our world desperately needs to hear. Sometimes I still rely on control to manufacture fruit in my life, but through visibly seeing God's love, compassion, and kindness, I am learning and seeing the gifts of the Spirit flow naturally out of my life. I'm finding un unconditional love where previously all I had was a list of conditions that I needed to meet in order to be okay. I'm finding a God who doesn't just love me but likes me in the middle of my quirks and all my insecurities. I'm finding tools to live one day at a time through surrender. I'm finding community. I'm finding peace. I'm finding joy. And I'm finding freedom. One of my favorite quotes is by St. Irenaeus. He says, The glory of God is a heart fully alive. I feel more connected, alive, and free, and there is a certain anticipation and electricity surrounding the presence of God in my life that I've never experienced before. I am experiencing abundant life. Thank you for letting me share, and please allow me to pray for us as we close. God, we thank you for your tremendous invitation for each one of us to surrender our sin and wounds and shame to you and find your cleansing love and the power to be able to change. God, we pray for each person here that you would draw us deeper into your abundant life and bless us as we go on throughout this day. Thank you all.